This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse and discuss the latest updates from the front lines of the war in Ukraine and speak to a doctor and activist from Ukraine called Walter Legg. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 14th of July, Day 141, and today I'm joined by The Telegraph's senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, and Ukrainian doctor and activist, Walter Lech. I started by asking about the horrific attacks we saw in the city of Venetia today. Yeah, so it was um, about 10 minutes to 11 local time. Um, the Ukrainians say there were three cruise missiles landed, bang in the centre of the city, um, in a car park next to a nine-story business centre, kind of basically an office block where small businesses, you know, had their own workspace. Um, lots of people around. It, it's pretty horrific by the sounds of things. Very big explosions. Um, the official death toll so far confirmed is 17. 90 people wounded, many of them seriously I would expect those numbers to grow because the the images coming out of there are, you know, as as horrific as you'd expect if you dropped a cruise missile in the in the middle of a city centre. I mean, you know, really really badly damaged buildings, twisted cars, burnt out vehicles, turned over babies, buggies, you know, severed limbs, um, all all of that horror. So yes, a very very nasty um, incident in Vinitsa. Um, what were they targeting? Um, I haven't yet seen the Russians officially comment on this. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they'll make a claim about um, there being some kind of legitimate target there. The Ukrainians are adamant um, there was no military target here. Um, this was, for some reason, an attack bang in the center of a city on uh, in, a, in, <laughs> in a place where people go shopping. 
goodness, it's horrific, isn't it? And where is where does Venezia sit in Ukraine? Is it and is is it somewhere that's been targeted before, or is this kind of represent a new target for the Russians? Uh, so Venezia is about 160 miles, kind of southwest of Kiev. You could call it central. I'd call it western Ukraine, to be honest. Um, it is miles from any front line, hundreds of miles from any front line. Um, a kind of quite pleasant, slightly sleepy um, city of a, a few hundred. I'm not actually sure what the population is, but it's not a big place. Um, it has been a hub for refugees um, since the war began. It was the kind of place that was safe. Um, people would kind of stop there. Um, some people stayed there or move on to Lviv on their, on their way west to Poland. Um, it, it, it is one of those relatively safe cities a long way from anywhere. Um, I believe it has been struck previously, not bang in the city centre, but the, Russia has been carrying out these cruise missile attacks all over Ukraine. Um, throughout the war, they come in waves. Um, sometimes, when the when the Russians have a point to make, so we remember, you know, cruise missile strikes on on Kiev while the um, United Nations Secretary General was in town. Um, or, or there, there are there are also kind of there is military policy uh, in these deep strikes. The Russians have been talking about hitting what they call decision making centers. Um, so we're talking, you know, theoretically, we're talking about kind of bases, office, uh, office space, kind of headquarters where the war is being run from. I suspect that's what we're going to hear from the Russian Ministry of Defense justifying this strike. Um, the Ukrainian line on that would be this is ridiculous. Um, this is clearly basically a form of terror bombing, um, a way of uh, bringing the fear and the terror of the war um, to civilians to make sure everyone knows they're not safe anywhere. Thanks, Roland. Um, Venetia, can we move to you? We also had some diplomatic news yesterday that Ukraine has cut ties with North Korea. Why Why did they do this? Um, and why did they make this announcement? So this is to do with North Korea recognising Donetsk and Luhansk as, as, as separate republics. Um, and... North Korea is only the third country in the world to do so. The first, obviously, was Russia. The second was Syria. So all the all the all the best countries that you want to have on your side in a conflict. Um, Ukraine has said it's going to cut ties with North Korea. This doesn't have any sort of really significant diplomatic or economic implications. Um, but I guess it shows that Ukraine is not taking any prisoners on the diplomatic front for people who do go those extra miles to recognise the facts on the ground that Russia is trying to create. Um, in this in, in eastern Ukraine. Um, another thing I should mention in eastern Ukraine, another sort of development on the ground that we've seen, um, is that the MOD issued in its briefing today suggesting that Russia has not made any territorial advances over the last 72 hours. Um, what's quite interesting in their briefing is that it also says that Russia is in danger of losing the momentum that it's built up following the capture of Lysyshansk. Obviously, we've heard a lot about Russia's gains over the last few weeks, Ukraine having to um, conduct a number of tactical retreats. Um, and this it's this suggests that maybe, well, we, we initially thought that this pause in activity was to give, was a purposeful on Russia's behalf so that they could take an operational, what's known as an operational pause, so that they could regroup, let their soldiers rest um, and, you know, decide how next to proceed. Um, but the MOD briefing suggests that maybe... 
as I said, they're starting to lose momentum and that maybe that will start to affect the sort of pace of their progress in the Donbass. Um, they've now effectively captured the region of Luhansk. Um, and in order to capture the whole of the Donbass, which was one of Vladimir Putin's stated aims at the beginning of this war, they'd have to now capture the region of Donetsk. Um, so that's sort of next on their target list. But as we say, we haven't seen any major progress in terms of capturing territory in the last few days on that front. Thanks, Venetia. Um I wonder if we could go back to you, Roland. So obviously you were speaking about those horrific attacks earlier, which um, many of us would certainly imagine um, would move into the territory of war crimes. The UK government have announced new a new package around war crimes today. Could you give us a bit of detail about exactly what that is? It's just of uh, something that's being called the Ukraine Accountability Conference. Um, it's in The Hague. It's being co-hosted by the um, the International Criminal Court and the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, European Commission. Um, it's basically aimed at um, prosecuting war crimes that have been committed in the course of this war. Um, the UK is donating two and a half million pounds to, I believe, the Office of the Ukrainian Prosecutor General um, to support the investigations. Um, also today, we've got the, the OIC has released a new report um, kind of documenting uh, possible war crimes, reported war crimes, abuses of rights, um, uh, predominantly by Russian forces um, in Ukraine. It is a big bit of work. It documents things that I think we've we've talked about before. Um, the, the kind of stuff we're familiar with from places like Butcher, we're talking about um, killings of civilians, um, sexual violence, rape by soldiers, um, the filtration camps. Um, so this this system of what the Russians call them filtration centers, and the idea is that if you capture an area, um, you know civilians are screened um, to you know make sure that they're not collaborators or or, or or Ukrainian soldiers and so on. Deep, deep concerns about about that kind of thing. Um, and this is all in the context of, um, and I think the British government wants to kind of put it in the context of the broader um, support for Ukraine. It's very much, uh, this is meant to be seen as part of the military support, part of the political support, the economic support. Um, the chances of actually arresting the soldiers suspected of, of perpetrating um, crimes if Russia does not lose this war, I think are pretty slim. And if you look at things like the Yugoslavia Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal, it can go on for years and years and years. Thanks, Roland. Um, great. Well, thank you so much, both Venetia and Roland, for those updates. I know that um, Venetia is, is on our very busy foreign desk today, so has to run off at some point. But I really appreciate you guys um, giving your time to our podcast and Twitter space this afternoon. I wanted now to introduce um, Walter Leck to the Twitter space. Now, um, Walter is someone who's very familiar with the format of Twitter spaces, as he himself is the founder of The Walter Report, which is a constant Twitter space that's been going on since Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, so, Walter, first, if you could give our listeners a little bit of a information about you, um, where you're from, what you do, that would be absolutely brilliant. Thank you for having me here. Um, just a little correction. Uh, the space hasn't been going for eight years because Russia invaded Ukraine eight years ago by uh, occupying Crimea and uh, starting a war in the east of Ukraine that has been on for eight years. The space has started when Russia reinvaded Ukraine on the 24th of February. Uh, we were alive specifically. We never planned to, to continue 
indefinitely. And uh, we've watched the Russian attacks on the checkpoints in between mainland Ukraine and Russian occupied Crimea. And we watched live the, the Russian rocket strikes and missile strikes on Ukrainian cities on the 24th, on the eve of 24th. This is how the renewed full-scale Russian invasion started. So, yes, at that point, it kind of kicked off, and the space continued to provide the coverage. Uh, and with some like-minded individuals, became a 24-7, 24-7 space, essentially. Uh, me, personally, I'm physically in New York City right now. I'm from Western Ukraine, from Lviv. We moved to the States like two years ago, I reckon, uh, when the situation was stable. And uh, when all this kick-started on the 24th, my family, my friends are in Ukraine. Some friends are fighting. Some friends from medical school are delivering help uh, in frontline hospitals. So me being here, for me personally, it would be... It wouldn't be possible, actually, not to do something, and uh, I believe this space became uh, some form of contribution. For many Ukrainians, it's uh, you know either directly being engaged uh, in the field. For some, it's uh, or for many, it's uh, raising donations. For many, it's doing some other volunteer works. For me, it is I believe this space um, trying to counter Russian narratives, Russian disinformation, uh, elevate Ukrainian voices, and also to fundraise. We managed to raise over uh, half a million dollars for Ukrainian cause and for non-lethal aid coming to Ukraine. Wow. And the Walter report itself, which, what kind of speakers are you getting onto the space? Who, who is one of the most memorable people that you've had on and and what are the messages that you want to send when you when you run it? It's a great question. We have a like a constant panel of military experts who share their uh, views about the current developments and uh, military strategies. We had uh, generals, retired generals, colonels, uh, but again. I tried to, to, to elevate Ukrainian voices. So they said the many memorable voices are, we had uh, live voices from Kharkiv, uh, just a regular civilian, a woman who, who tuned in, uh, an individual from Twitter who was tweeting in a distressed way about what's going on in northern Saltivka while she was under Russian rocket attack. And, uh, Essentially, in the distressed mode, she tuned in and described what is happening. How does it feel to be in that situation? And uh, it was quite quite moving, to say the least. And uh, we actually had Roman Ratushny on the space, which is personally it's, uh, it's it's also quite moving because if you know, Roman was one of the most prominent Ukrainian. Um, civic society leaders who was active on Maidan, who was doing a lot of uh, activist work with Pratasivyar, and then he joined the 93rd Brigade as the war started, and was a recce soldier on the front lines. And we were lucky to have him, have him for about five times in the space. 
when he was uh, like on a brief leave from his work somewhere in the, in the rear section of the front lines and he was delivering like life updates from the front line until the moment when he was killed by Russians, which was a great loss for the Ukraine. But the space was honored to actually have um, that level of individual in the space. So again, it differs. Um, as it is a 24-7 thing, we, we occasionally have uh, unexpected guests and we try to plan them out. And uh, it's a platform, it's a spectrum. And again, it's elevating Ukrainian voices and uh, injecting expert opinion on the subject matter. And you mentioned there about elevating voices, making sure that the message is out there. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about the importance of the information war and the communications of the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian president. How have you seen the information war change since the beginning or since this reinvasion, as you put it, um, of Ukraine? Have you felt like you had to employ new tactics as people's, is the news agenda shifts? And do you think it's still even even more important than it was before? So we have to understand that Russia wages war on uh, different front lines. Uh, Russia uses everything to wage war. Uh, right now, of course, Ukraine is at the front line. But Russia wages economic war, uh, war by means of energy, uh, and obviously kinetic war in Ukraine. Uh, for Ukraine, it's also using language as a means of war and uh, other elements. For us here, for you in Britain, for me in States, we are essentially in war uh, with Russia uh, or subject to Russian aggression by Russian means of information warfare. So Russia uses all tactics to subvert, erode, uh, target the cohesion of democratic society, uh, push and uh, potentiate the extreme sides of the political spectrum or extreme groups, potentiate some kind of a conspiratorial movements. So all of that is being used. It's a multi-layered approach. We have to understand that we are also in this process. Uh, for, for Russia, uh, democratic society uh, and established democratic society in the West is the enemy. Ukraine as a budding democracy, as developing democracy, as a democracy that is close to Russia is, uh, of course, a prime target. But we shouldn't be, you know, uh, laying placid here. Uh, we are also a target for them. Um, regarding the narratives that developed, obviously, as you have seen, uh, um, the initial months or two, uh, Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation didn't kind of react in the way that everyone expected it to react, as well as Russian army, of course, as it failed miserably and was eventually strategically defeated in the north of Ukraine and pushed back. Probably the same thing somewhat happened with Russian propaganda. They expected one thing. Uh, probably they believed their own, own lies and their own propaganda about Ukraine folding, if you recall one. It was supposed to be one or two weeks and Ukraine just caving in and uh, being defeated. Defeated, of course, it wasn't the case. 
And uh, as the fighting continued, and in the north of Ukraine, Russians were strategically defeated, and fighting right now continues in the south to essentially push Russians back from Russian-occupied territories. Russian propaganda and their their methods also kind of shifted. We had new, interesting, kind of predicted things happened, like the case was of Sannikova initially. We had seen this uh, Russian attempt to evoke feelings um, and projected that into Western societies, this fake uh, parade of anti-war individual parading with anti-war poster on, again, governmentally controlled Russian TV and then pushing all these narratives stemming from Russian information warfare. That was a cute trick, didn't fly well in a long-term perspective, but unfortunately, initially, it was uh, uh, taken by a lot of gullible people, so that kind of worked for them. And right now, it continues with all these Russian narratives about uh, food crisis that Russia itself created and continues to exacerbate by targeting Ukrainian fields, burning them, and targeting and destroying the grain storage facilities and silos, and uh, accompanying narratives about, you know, shifting the blame, whataboutism, old good whataboutism, it's still there, and all other kind of uh, narratives that are being injected and uh, perpetuated uh, by Russian disinformation. So yes, we also tried to combat that. Uh, we tried to actually <laughs> combat other quite dangerous thing, uh, which I perceive also quite appalling. Um, the narratives that goes along, let's hear Russian side, or let's uh, listen to what Russians say, what, what Russian claims are. Again, at this point, we're... Uh, we're witnessing a genocide happening in real life. And uh, here's the reality check for everyone who is listening. All the criteria of Russians perpetrating genocide in Ukraine, they check out. It's uh, mass murders. It's a deliberate campaign to eradicate the whole nation. And they officially actually claim that Russian officials announced that uh, it's a deliberate campaign to deport uh, hundreds of thousands of children uh, to to essentially strip the whole nation of its future, of its children, to eradicate and erase the culture of the country. And uh, again, it's being publicly announced, and uh, this is what is happening right now. So uh, hearing all these notions about, let's hear Russian side, or let's listen to what Russian officials say, it's... Uh, Honestly, it's like uh, stating that in 1944-33, Britain should have been listening to what Nazi German officials are stating, and uh, British media would, uh, you know, tune in to those notions and consider them as a part of the narrative because it's just the opposite opinion. So uh, that's also like a part of the problem that we should be cognizant about. Definitely, and thank you for that really really cohesive answer there um in terms of you mentioned that you've got lots of contacts lots of friends still in ukraine what are they saying to you at the moment i know that that's a huge question but your friends in lviv your 
friends in Kiev. What 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 are they saying about the situation at the moment and what that how their daily life is like and how things have changed? So it differs for differs for for some. From my best friend, uh, the life changed drastically because he was mobilized into territorial defense forces, trained, and right now being sent to the front line uh, towards Kharkiv. Uh, again, he's from Lviv. For others, again. Not a single place in Ukraine is safe. You can be in Viv, you can be in Hust, in Zakarpatia region, or Vinnitsa like today, and you go shopping into the shopping mall, and uh, you get evaporized, burned to death by Russian rocket strike. Uh, civilians are legit targets for Russians. Uh, maternity hospitals are legit targets for Russians. Then they are being designated as command and control centers, right? And there is a lot of mental gymnastics and Russian narratives being injected to justify the strike, the deliberate strike on civilian infrastructure, apartment blocks, and whatnot. Um, So again, if you're in Ukraine, no place is safe for you. If you're in the east of Ukraine, like right now in Bakhmut and other cities, your city is being leveled down to the ground by Russian artillery, which is specifically by uh, having an upper hand in sheer numbers. Numbers of artillery shells are just wiping from the face of yourself, a place where you lived. So that is the reality. Some things are gone, like completely gone. And I mean, Izum, Volnovacha, seas of, or like, approximately 100,000 people. A city of the size of Bristol, Glasgow, larger than Manchester. A city in Ukraine called Mariupol is wiped out, essentially, from the face of the earth, completely destroyed, with a population of more more than half a million people. 40,000 of those, approximately, at least 40,000 of those were killed by Russians in Mariupol. So this is the reality of living in Ukraine right now. This is the reality of having a terrorist state, Russia, again, because Russia being a terrorist state, as your neighbor, trying to eradicate you, kill you, kill your family, and uh, basically deport whatever is left of it. So this is what is living right now in Ukraine. Being a legit target, if you're a civilian, if you're a kid, for Russian soldiers who are receiving those soldiers, those orders from their command, for Russian pilots who launch rockets on the theaters where civilians are hiding, or hospitals where civilians are hiding, all of those are legit targets. And of course, after that, Russian disinformation kicks in uh, because these were command and control centers or decision-making centers, right? So this is what it is in Ukraine right now. And you are a doctor, am I right in asking? Um, and that therefore means you must know quite a lot of medics in Ukraine, I would guess. How Have you got any contacts with um, medics on the front line? We have a dispatch on the Telegraph today from our reporter Colin Freeman in Ukraine about the doctors and nurses on the front line and the lengths they're going to to try and perform surgery and and save people. 
Have you spoken to any medics in Ukraine and what, what do they have to say about what, the, about what their working conditions are like and the situation there? So, it, again, also it differs where you physically are. Obviously, hospitals are overloaded. It's, uh, it is also a testament of work of the civilian medics, but in the first place of combat medics and military physicians, uh, they're doing the just incredible self-sacrificial work. Uh, one of my friends uh, was a field surgeon, is a field surgeon, but he was in Bakhmut until recently. And uh, in between Bakhmut and Kramatorsk. Um, so my specialty is a bit different. Um, I, I can only say that right now, uh, their work is is paramount. And the work of combat medics um, on the front line, people like hospitalers, combat medics who are risking their lives and are a legit target for Russian, actually one of the prime targets. Uh, good that you mentioned it. Uh, from my discussions with, with combat medics, uh, actually for eight years, uh, Russian invaders uh, have considered combat medics, medical evacuation vehicles, as prime targets for attacks. So it's also one of the war crimes that Russians perpetrate in Ukraine. It continues to be the case uh, right now since the 24th, and it's also a big issue because you're constantly risking your life on the front line trying to evacuate and save lives, and you're being considered uh, one of the prime targets, to say the least. And you, you, you've you've talked about medics being the prime targets. Have you got anyone? Did you train in medicine in Ukraine? And do you know anyone currently who's in that situation where they're they're targets and they're on the front line personally? Yes, absolutely. Well, I trained and worked for seven years in Ukraine as a physician, a surgeon uh, in a different specialty. <laughs> As I mentioned, it's obstetrics, um, and I know people who 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 changed or uh, shifted to a different area right now because of the circumstances. Uh, regarding those who were targeted, literally, yes, I know Anna and uh, Katerina Katerina Halushka from hospitalers, and uh, I know their story. If you want me to share that, would be glad. Uh, they are. Personally, they have been under attacks and they their medical evacuation vehicles in the front lines or close to the front lines were targeted and attacked by Russian military. So but that's, I believe, a different story a little bit. Again, it's a testament to their work because what they do, it's uh, uh, you have to get some you have to have some gut to actually to do that, to say the least. If you if you do feel comfortable sharing that story, I'm sure our listeners would be, would be interested to hear. Well, I believe you that the best option for you would to get a translator and uh, to invite them to your space. They are the first hand witness accounts and uh, the ones who are, who are in the middle of it right now, and uh, their story is crucial. And I would suggest you you follow that. Me just uh, conveying what they said. Yeah, they're like under constant attacks. 
Uh, their vehicles are being targeted on the front lines, as I mentioned, and they're risking their lives on a daily basis. Uh, recently, they lost their combat evacuation vehicle, which was a large bus, um, specifically redesigned or refurbished to evacuate a large number of um, wounded soldiers. Uh, they lost one of the ladies uh, during that accident. Their uh, trauma surgeon lost his wrist, which got traumatically amputated. So that's the part of the story, but the story is not for me to tell, but for those ladies. And I strongly suggest that you invite them. We will do just that. Thank you so much, Walter. Um, a quick final question, I guess, for me is I wanted to flip over to your involvement in um, the NAFO, the NAFO. Can you tell me what you, what you do with them and how you fundraise? So NAFO actually changed my avatar or whatever that is, profiles like just recently. Uh, it's, a, it's a part of, I guess, uh, information campaign and uh, slash trolling Russian disinformation online, which is uh, good stuff and a good thing to do. Um, I'm not directly involved, but I support the cause. And as you see, uh, my avatar has a Walter report uh, uh, anti-tank weapon with a Walter report thingy on top of it. So it also kind of shows where I'm coming from in this regard. Uh, again, it's a good bunch uh, of fellas. They're doing an excellent work. And uh, again, it's, a, it's part of disproving Russian disinformation, Russian narratives online, which is uh, something that should be uh, potentiated, to say the least. In a, in a funny manner, in a humoristic manner, uh, in a jokingly manner, even though the things that are discussed are quite grim. But there is also an you know, element of dark humor in anything that, that actually gives you a chance to cope with that. So I believe that's one of those things. Certainly, there's a there's an interview as well that David, who normally hosts this Twitter space, did with a stand-up comedian in Kiev, and again he echoed that same point about the importance of um, a tiny bit of dark humour among all the bleakness. Um, as we move towards the end of the time we've got here, my final question, I be I guess, would be we usually say to our guests if they have one message for our listeners to leave them with before we speak to them again on this podcast, what would it be? Um, and you've given us a huge amount to think about today, but I wondered what, what, yours, what your final message would be. The final message would be, again, that we have to, to embrace the reality check. There is a genocide happening in Europe right now. Uh, the genocide is perpetrated by the whole country of Russia against Ukraine. Again, it's not just Putin. Putin is a part of a bigger problem. The problem is uh, the regime that is in charge of Russia. The problem is the network that actually uh, potentiates this regime for many years. And the part is the, the brainwashing and that part of the Russian society and majority of Russian society that adheres to those ideas that were injected and wholly support them. And the problem will be 
an issue, not for just Ukraine, but for the whole world for many years to come. The world will probably not stop anytime soon, unfortunately, even with pushing Russian invaders out from Russian-occupied Ukrainian territories. If Russia remains as it is, it will remain a problem for the rest of the world, as it was with Germany in 1940s. And uh, we should not uh, turn our heads away. We should not remain deaf. Again, this is the genocide that is happening. Genocide is being perpetrated. And here's the reality check for every single one of us. Russia sees democratic societies as number one enemy targets and continues to erode, subvert, and target democratic societies by various means. So we are at war, believe it or not. Uh, deny it or embrace it. Uh, but that is the fact. The war is being waged by different means. Uh, and we are the target. The democratic society in our cohesion. Uh, in Ukraine, it's just one additional element of that war. It's a kinetic war on the ground plus the genocide that Russians perpetrate. But uh, again, it's a, it should be a reality check. As we move on, as this shifts into the background and we move on with our lives, the whole thing doesn't get better. It just gets worse uh, with more people dying in Ukraine and with Russia trying to do the mental gymnastics and inject new information warfare narratives to to kind of muddy the waters. And we have to constantly do the effort to combat that and push that away and to essentially cut all the ties with Russia, cut the sponsorship, cut the, the dealing and the trade with Russia because our money sent to Russia in one way or another by procuring, purchasing anything, be it a resource of oil, gas, minerals, or something else, uh, this money is sponsoring Russian genocide of Ukrainians and sponsoring the murders of innocent people, women, children in Ukraine. This is the reality check as well. And we have to combat corruption here in the democratic societies because Russia uses that as, as a tool as well, as one of the elements of the warfare against us. Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear and Phil Atkins and today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.